Father, we want to be a church that fulfills all the different things that it means to be your people in this world. Safe and loving and kind and forgiving. And we want to be as healthy as we can in our own individual lives, our families, our homes. And so we would ask that you take anything that is said today by anyone and that you would uh, help us to understand and to grow. And of course, we'll give you all the praise for you are the God of love. In Jesus' name. Okay, I'll turn it over to Cheryl. Yeah. So, for those of you who were here last week, welcome back. We're going to follow up a little bit on what we talked about, but I will bring the rest of you up to speed so nobody, hopefully, will feel left behind. Um, welcome if you are new this week. Um, I'm Cheryl Wayman. This is Denny Wayman. He was pastor here for 40 plus years, and I ran the counseling center here for over 20 years, so this is kind of our wheelhouse. This is what God called us to do and equipped us to do and what he continues to use us to do, so uh, we're just really privileged and pleased to be here with you today. Last week, what we talked about is how not to harm people. Thank you. Um, that if, if nothing else, in our relationships, we, especially as Christians, should be people who do not harm other people, whether it's in our families, in our churches, in our communities, in our country, to be people who do no harm. So where we started last week is how can we be people who do no harm? And we use the word safe, not in the terms of playing it safe or not taking a risk for God, but in the term of not being a person who's going to harm someone. So... From those of you who were here last week, was anybody able to work on a safe behavior that we talked about? Anybody want to be brave enough to speak up? Sarah. Well, I offered that I often um, want to move conversation quickly, and my husband is a slow speaker. So I actually went back and told him what I had said to encourage myself to hear it, to hold myself accountable, but also to give him the opportunity to let me know when I'm, when I'm doing it. Yes. Yeah. And here I just said it. I'm sorry. finished your turn. That is such a great, thank you for being brave and saying that, because to actually say what we're working on, and whether we do it with our spouse or in our Bible study group or something, it really does call us to be more accountable to to work on that behavior, and please forgive me for finishing this. <laughs> Anybody else have something that they worked on this last week to be more safe in their relationships, David? Well, I think the most important thing for me is stay off the phone when you're angry. Ooh, yes, yes. And we're going to talk more about anger, but not right here at the beginning. But yeah, thank you for bringing this up. If any of you want some of last week's handouts, we have some extras over on the table. So after class, I'd be happy to, to give you some of those. Uh, where we ended last week is talking about what makes an um, unsafe, a hurtful relationship in churches. And we ended with Tangled Webs, and we, do, we did go ahead and remake those handouts. Because even though we opened up that topic last week, we're going to talk about it more in terms of our church relationships and our work relationships and our group relationships. 
If you brought your one from last week, don't don't take one of these. But I think we have to. So I think you're good. Um, as those are being passed around, I'm going to put four things on the whiteboard here that uh, the Gottman Institute, which has done kind of the premier couples counseling research for the last 20 or so years, they say there are four behaviors that are predictable for divorce in our country. So the four most predictable, and interestingly enough, not one of these words appeared on our unsafe list last week. So I, I'll put it on the board for you, and then he's going to take us back into a discussion of the tangled web and triangles. This research, actually, that she's putting up here is very important, so be sure and, and look at her, take a picture of it, and then think about and analyze your relationships. Not just in marriage, but this is a prediction of divorce, but it would be in any relationship. Okay? Does that make sense? I think I'm going to let you do that. Okay. Is it going to take a while? No, not at all. Four words is all I'm getting at. Uh, you might want to erase Don Patterson's name. I, I would if I was that tall. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried. Uh, I can do it. We need taller people. Anybody have a guess for what some of these four words might be? Uh, infidelity. Like, uh, yeah, one would think, and it's not on the list. Okay. <laughs> one I, would, I would think. <laughs> First word? Oh, yeah. All together. Contempt. So think about rolling the eyes when somebody says something. Total disrespect is what I think of when I think of the word contempt. Second word, criticism. Just nit, 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 nit. You know, the, the uh, almost like a pecking at somebody's behavior. <laughs> Third word, defensiveness. So not even being able to hear or saying, well, I was really right and you shouldn't be feeling hurt. You know, being defensive. Yes. Not being able to hear. And the last is stonewalling. Now, we did kind of talk about being a disagreeable person last week. Remember when we said disagree rated pretty low on the safe scale? It was like a negative 14 or something in unsafe behavior. I think of stonewalling as sort of that way because no matter what is being talked about, there's a brick wall that doesn't allow that to be absorbed or acted upon. But these are good, good words to add to your unsafe list. Okay. I'm going to go over this very quickly for those of you who were here last week so it won't be too much of a, of a thing. But... Triangling is one of the primary problems in any church and relationship, but I'm focused primarily in this one on relationships first and then church second. So first, you all, you all know what a triangle is. It's when somebody has a conflict and they stop talking to each other, but they want to get a message to the other person, so they triangle in a person. It's often a pastor, Christian, Bible study leader, uh, you know, good friend. And so they'll both tell the problem to this person. And what happens then is that the conflict becomes a stable conflict. 
becomes what they call a rigid triangle. And this means they are all happy because they don't have to talk to each other. And all the pressure is on the person triangle there. Do you follow? Yeah, also it ruins the relationship that that person has with the other two people. Yes. I used an example last week that, that showed that story. I won't do it today, but yeah. This, this is, uh, because a pastor and a Christian, you know, kind of, a pastor gets paid, a Christian gets, you know, we should do it. We, we kind of want to listen to people's problems, and we want to fix them, especially if you're males, but females do this too. All right, any questions? Hands? Is it still triangling if that person with the tongue sticking out willingly comes to one of the two and wants to help repair it? It, it depends. Okay. It depends. If, if you take over the conflict, it is, whether you do it or not. Okay. I mean, whether you desire it or not. The the solution, what they call, is detriangling, which is, I, I think of it as coaching. And this is what every counselor does all the time, is you talk to the one about how to talk to the other. If they're both together, you put them knee to knee and you coach them how to talk to each other. But if they're not, you'll role play it so that they get a chance to figure out, okay, how do we talk about this? What's it feel like to say that? It's a better way of saying it, and so on. Do you follow? So detriangling, it, it sounds simple. It's very, very not. Um, and the reasons we'll get into more so next week when we get into conflict resolution, as to conflicts don't just happen in a vacuum. They happen from, from generations of ways of interacting to different uh, uh, contexts and and different relationships and so on like that. So we'll talk about that more next week. That, that's what we'll actually start with. Yeah? If, if we're invited or asked to help in a situation that we know is painful and, and people are struggling, is the best response to say, I'll be there if the two of you will be there together, or I don't really want to be involved. You take this back to that person. Well, the, the first one is not, I mean, the first one is the answer. The second, it, it can be if they told you this a hundred times and they don't want to talk and so on. And, and so, you know, you just have to establish the boundary. One thing I found helpful is uh, to, to de-triangle and become that coach who comes alongside and say, you know, you guys really need to talk together. And sometimes it's helpful say, if you're afraid to talk to this person one-on-one because they're unsafe for you, I'm willing to go and just be with you. Um, so you or I'm willing to take you to the counselor. Mm. But then you don't take over and speak. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. But we have, to, we have to get them talking or the conflict is never resolved. I get out of the middle. Yeah. Does that all make sense? What's yeah. knee to knee? Knee to knee is simply uh, well, like I won't do it to anybody else. I'll do it to Cheryl. Knee to knee is when you put two people like this, knee to knee. We're going to talk about active listening, so let's say that. But that's that's knee to knee. Oh, all right. So you're you're on a on the same level. You're talking eye to eye, knee to knee, face to face. Not somebody talking with the television going on. Lots of distractions. Okay.
Okay, now this this moves us over then into uh, what's called tangled web. When you have relationships that are not uh, based on a true relationship, but they're based on other factors, like here here's the first one. If you're a friend of my friend, then you're my friend too. Now, that sounds okay, but is that the way we make friends? No. Just because you're a friend of somebody doesn't mean that I would be a friend of them. But if I have to be a friend of them because you're my boss, you're, you're whatever, you're in the same business, you're you know, in the same political party, you're in the same whatever, then you get into these rigid things. If you are an enemy of my friend, then you're my enemy too. And I want you to notice that the math is what's important here. If you're a negative, negative, then you're a positive. Do you follow? Okay. If you're an enemy of my friend, so there's a negative, you, enemy of friend, then my friend, then you're my enemy too. Do you follow? So the negatives and positive are a mathematical system. Does anybody and, need one? We have plenty. Uh, are you wanting to look at this in case you didn't bring it from us? Okay. If you're a friend of my enemy, then you're my enemy too. And if you're an enemy of my enemy, then you're my friend. Do you follow? Now, those rigid triangles, which are based on something other than actual friendship, causes any organization, this is straight sociology, any organization will split. If it's a family uh, you can you can know pretty much that you you form these rigid coalitions when there are people in a family that won't talk to each other, and so a counselor will step back and say, "Okay, who has formed a rigid triangle that the other person cannot be a part of in some kind of measure?" And you see it. I think the easiest way to see it is to look at the Republican Democrat. If you're a Democrat, then you're my friend. If you're a Republican, then you're my friend, or you're my enemy, and it causes it's rigid. Also how gangs work. Yeah, it's also how gangs work. How junior uh, nations, junior high. This Mafia. is this is straight junior high. You know, our our junior high actually had had uh, squads in the school that different groups stood in, and they all dressed alike, they all looked alike, and so on like this. Well, it can be an equal or it can be unequal, so that you've got a minority that is being accused of whatever the problem is, or you can talk about them as being a terrible. We can see this politically, this is what happens today. Uh, but this is what uh, is scary for any leader. The math works the same if everybody turns against the leader. A pastor, an associate pastor, the pastor's wife, pastor's kid, your kid, uh, your kids at school, the the parents at your school, on and on. This is what causes division. Now, does that make sense? The picture of how bullying works as well—you single out one person, and a group of people take it out on them. Bullies seldom operate in the, on their own, right? Okay, so I went over this last week, but I want to make sure everybody understands it because this is one of the most important things that uh, 
you can come to understand triangles and tangled webs. I think it'd be helpful for you to give the golf example. Okay. Okay, for, for the, the, how I learned this was a long time before, Bowen's family systems, which is what all counselors use uh, in therapy, uh, came up with the concept of triangling and taught it back in the 80s, Cheryl? Maybe? Yeah, 70s. But before that time, I had a person come into my office and say, don't you agree with me that my husband should stop drinking. Well, the part I heard was that my husband should stop drinking. And there's nothing more destructive than anything that any counselor deals with than alcohol. It, it destroys the mind, it destroys the relationship, it destroys the children, it's generational. So yeah, if I could get alcohol out of anybody's life and this must be causing a problem, I would say yes. But that wasn't the question. The question was, don't you agree with me that and it didn't matter how you ended that sentence. That was the triangle. She was getting me on her side. Husband comes in the next day and says, we're leaving the church. I said, why? He's one of my very good friends. He said, well, you agree with my wife that I should stop golfing. And I said, golfing? And then come to understand, she didn't want him to go play golf because the night he told, they would go and he would come home drunk. And so she wanted to stop golfing this way he heard it. And I had stepped into a 25-year conflict. Do you follow? <laughs> and the same kind of thing. Don't you agree with me that the church should have green, green carpet? Okay? Red carpet. And we, should, we should meet at 11 o'clock instead of 10.30. We should sing choruses instead of hymns. We should, and I don't care how you end the sentence, if you're forming a coalition to get your will, you're, you're dividing the church by, by the nature of the sociology of it. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, I just had, I feel like it kind of relates when I had something happen at work years ago where somebody came to tell me something, but she said, everybody thinks this about uh -huh. you. Oh, that's and I remember it was like, uh, that, that's yeah. like, well, how do you fight that, right? Yeah. But, that's not a good tactic when people use that. We all think you should do Yeah, this. we all. Everybody in the church thinks. Yeah. And, you know, that it's just not true. We, and there, there's just no way. It might be one other person, but oftentimes it's not even another person. Yeah. You know? What if there's a family system and the behavior of one is so egregious that it divides not just triangling, but, but some kind of, of unsafe behavior. Yeah. You can answer that. Uh, okay, I would just say, unsafe behavior you have to always keep arms linked from. Which means, you know, every time you walk in, I hit him in the nose. What should he do? He should stay arms linked from me. <laughs> you know, because not anybody who hits you in the nose should stay arm's length. And here's a way to think of it when they're trying to control you. They're trying to control you, think of it as a marionette. And whatever they're trying to do to make you do what they want, you cut the string. <laughs> Just cut the string. Whatever that power is. But what if they're children? Okay, children, children we have to train, and that's a different thing than two equal adults who are trying to. And children, we have to just teach them. You know, this, that's not the way you do the relationships. You know. 
So this goes back to last week's topic, actually, of how not to harm people. And actually, it's a good picture of gossip, too. So you don't have to make political coalitions or have some topic that divides. But talking about a person whoops, and making them be the odd one out, um, these are things that happen in all kinds of groups, whether it's at work, whether it's at church, whether it's in family, whether you go to family reunion and divide people by making a coalition with other people, instead of going directly to the person and saying, I have a concern about this, and work it out between the two of you. Does that make sense? So what does a, a safe behavior church or group or family look like? And that's where we want to spend the majority of our time today. Um, Denny wrote a book years ago called The Church as a Just Redeeming Community. And trust me, this one-page summary <laughs> is way easier to digest than his very dense books. <laughs> so um, he was very kind to give it to us in the reader's digest form. But um, how do we make the groups that we're in, the, the groups that we take part in, safe and healing and validating to people, not just not harming them, but actually adding good, being beneficial, being healing. Um, that's what we want to focus on. So you want to sure. take off those things. This Everybody get a To define the church as a just redeeming community, uh, it's, it's far more complex. This is just a real digest that Cheryl just said. Uh, the whole book goes into a whole lot of other stuff. But I want to I talk about what it looks like to be a church. Number one, that power resides in gifting rather than in position. Uh, oftentimes in any organization, you'll see this in, at work a lot, the wrong person is in the job, right? <laughs> what, what do you do? Well, if you're the one in charge, you want to have the person who has the ability to do the job to be in the position. But if you're not, you've got to live with somebody who can't do the job, right? Well, in a church, we have this wonderful understanding that God gives gifts to people in order for them to do the work of the church. But if somebody wants to be like, you, you can imagine if we had uh, somebody get up to do a sermon and they, they actually can't do public speaking. That would be excruciating for all of us, right? But we come, and, and Colleen is amazing, and we're just, we're blessed. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So gifts and ability are given by the Spirit. God decides, like, I have a gift of pastor-teacher. God decided I got to be positioned, I, I have to be, there's no real choice in this in some ways, I had to be positioned as a pastor-teacher here. That's the call of Jesus. Jesus decides where you use your gifts. You follow? So all of you have gifts. Ask the Lord of the church where you should use it. Does that make sense? In an unjust environment, people are not honest with themselves or each other about their individual gifts or abilities. They're concerned rather about their own advancement in an institutional structure of getting more power or more money or whatever it might be. You follow? 
Any questions about that? That is that is endemic to any well-run organization. <clears throat> and and I, I spent a lot of time talking to people just because an organization is Christian, just because it's a church, doesn't mean that it's a just community with the right people in the right position. But everybody in the organization knows if, like the, the pastor, the president, or whoever, is shouldn't be in that position. They all know that. They, and they all suffer it. Okay, any questions about that? I can see everybody's mind just went. <laughs> okay, number two. Yes. How do we work on having this happen? What do you mean, how do you work on it? Like, I mean, it seems like in our church we do a pretty darn good job, but in in any kind of situation where this isn't happening, you know, yeah, is it? If you're if it's at work, let's say, yeah, and you're not the boss, <clears throat> you've got to learn to deal with it, yeah, and and try to use your gifts in a way that will be helpful, in a safe way, supportive way, for them to recognize and be honest with them if you can be close enough to them. I've said it many times. You, you call it professionally, it's called out counseling. But it's whenever you talk to a person, you don't seem happy at this. You always seem angry at everyone. And you try to help them recognize for themselves that, you know, this probably isn't what I should be doing with my life. But if you're under someone like that, you know, you have to be very, very wise about how you interact. Now, once you get to be the boss and you get to create your own team, then use this. Look at what does your team need? What are all the different gifts and abilities? And how can you find people that have those gifts and abilities? And then they'll work together, uh, you know, depending on, of course, personality and other kinds of things. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? We can also apply this to marriage, and I think it helps illuminate how we are mutually submissive to one another. When we look at each other in terms of gifts and who's good at doing finances and taxes and who's good at cooking and who's good at the different things that have to happen um, in, a, in a marriage, in a home. And doing things by people's gifting and by their talents and by their willingness. And then there's this stuff nobody wants to do and you just divide it up. Because it must <laughs> like, nobody's got the gift of cleaning the toilet, right? But it still has to be done. So, yeah. Some, some people are better than others. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. That's nice. But, um, about the mutual submission thing last week. And so not only in a church does this work, but in a family. And um, this, it seems like, it seems so common sense that if God puts people together to live together, that this is how they... Know what piece they play on the team. In an early marriage, many many people don't work that out. They just fight, mm -hmm. and you have to sit them down and help them recognize. If you were a counselor or a friend, I wonder. You know, you shouldn't look at gifts or something. What are you really good at? They or might who's not... willing to take the cooking class? If yeah. nobody can cook, who's willing to learn? Who's willing to learn how to take care of your Who's willing to go to a restaurant? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When you look at a church or a business, people are kind of mutually, ideally, they're mutually invested. In a family, in a home, there's a certain amount of investment. 
then there is also demand outside of that. And in our, I guess I'm speaking from my own personal experience, Fred is really gifted at what he does. Does that give him a pass? Does, you know, does that dismiss him from mutual stuff? I mean, We'll, act, we'll actually talk more about this when I talk communication. Okay. So hold a little We're almost there. We're almost okay. there. Almost there. Um, one last thing I wanted to say about how we make our church group safe is what we've adopted in our Bible studies and our small groups, as well as at Women's Retreat and other places. You guys have seen this. Um, this is something we go over when a new group starts. <laughs> Here, set that up. Something we go over when a new group starts and um, go over kind of safe group rules. And it keeps us on track, it keeps us from gossiping, it keeps things confidential, and um, you can adapt them into your family or however however it's helpful. <coughs> so I didn't make it in on cardstock, so it stands, but I'm sure Carol would I be happy. I can't get it to stand anymore. All right, so anyway, <laughs> we'll just go over this in a first meeting of a small group of church. And it's simple. It's not like it's rocket science, but we have to do the basics to be safe. We have to do what we know to do to not harm other people. The, the second one... Did others come around? The so second I'm one is that in, in a biblical community, in a church, or a family, anything that, that's attempting to live by God's ways, Every person in the group is interdependent in love. The, the two primary cultures of the world are independence, which is the European culture, and dependence, or sociocentric, which is the rest of the world. And uh, the, the answer is not to be independent or to be dependent, it's to be interdependent in an equality way so that each person reaches their best potential. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's that's why within our system, we make it very clear that all races, all genders, everyone are equal. There's not a hierarchical uh, positioning within the church. Can you explain the difference between dependence and interdependence? And inter okay, dependence. Uh, in, in counseling, it, it, it's, that, this is the best way to say it. Uh, in counseling, we talk about a person born in an independent culture will have mental illness if they become overly dependent and can't move out from mom. Mom has to take care of them and so on like that. So in this culture, we try to get them back to being an independent person, having their own home, living their own life, right? But a dependent person, mental illness is when you go off and live by yourself and don't care about the family don't care about your relationships within the family. And that in a, in a counseling setting, we try to help this person have a proper amount of dependence within the family so that they're dependent together. Um, I can give you some examples of that, but that, that's basically. Interdependence, then, is not dependence or independence, but it's everybody equally interacting in a way that brings the best out of every person in the group. Kind of like an ongoing, uh, we call it synergism, but it's a, it's a, like a, a, a fountain of health and wholeness as everybody becomes their better self. So since it's Super Bowl Sunday, <laughs> <laughs> I 
I will give a shout out to that. In that, think of a team, a really well-functioning team is interdependent. They're not all carrying the ball. They're not all doing the kicks. They're not all running. They're not all tackling. But they're working together, and by working together with their best gifts, something good happens. Something is accomplished or not. Um, on the other hand, if they're not, if, it, if they're a dependent person, then they may just want to sit it out and let everybody else do the work. Mm -hmm. Or if they're an independent person, they may want to play all positions mm -hmm. and take over. So does that help too? Yeah. Okay. So there can be a healthy amount of dependence yes. as long as the person is not interdependent. And a child is going yeah. to be dependent. And right. that's not an unhealthy response at all. Inter interdependence, you know, you want both. Right. You want there to be a mutual, supportive equality that allows each person to come to their potential. Their full potential. Does that, does that make sense? Totally. Thank you. Any other questions on the whole, either the Tangled Web stuff? I've got to... two more of this, Cheryl. Oh, you've got two more. Yeah. Okay. Protection of people rather than institution. Okay. Um, I'm going to do, this is a brand new, you guys are the first people to get to see this. Um, I'm going to do a uh, PowerPoint on why this works the way it does. <coughs> this, this comes from a lecture by a sociologist in my seminary back years ago. And many people don't understand why institutions become bureaucratic and therefore don't take care of people, okay? And we're, we're going through it as a, as a community right now where our school system isn't taking care of our teachers and they're hiring more administrators instead and all of that. But here, here's why it happens. And it happens to churches, colleges, everything. Okay, he said that labor unions are the clearest form of institutional life. So here you have a grocery store. They have five employees. The, they don't think they're getting a good living wage, so they get John to go and talk to the management of their grocery store, and he gets raises for everyone and everyone's happy. You follow? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, this other grocery store finds out what John did, so they ask John to come up and represent them in negotiations with their management, and there everybody's happy. So they go to another store, another store, another store, another store, and finally they replace John, and John now spends all of his time being a representative of all these different grocery store clerks. You follow? Mm -hmm. All of you going along? Now, at that point, John needs an office. So he gets a little bitty office somewhere, and uh, he, he forms what are called, you know, they call themselves the Retail Clerks of America. I, that was my union. I was a part of the Retail Clerks of America when I was in high school and college. And so now the, the retail clerks are all together, and they now pay a due to their union dues so that John can live and rent an office. Do you follow? Now what happens at that point is that the, the purpose of John in his little office is mission focus. He wants to get better wages for union members. Make sense? Okay, but now 
as the organization grows and he gets more and he has some assistants who are helping him and now he's renting a little more expensive building, the mission focus starts to be overshadowed by the needs of the new institution. So over here, he starts becoming um, concerned about rent, payroll, new union reps, and so on. His attention now is being focused away from mission and towards the needs of his no, new institution. Do you follow? Now, when that becomes really big and he's got lots of reps and he's got lots of people there, then mission becomes secondary to institution. Institutional protection, focusing on personnel, payroll, pension, property, is, is what the, the organization is for. And we can see it if you look at unions today. Does that all make sense? It's exactly what churches are. Churches have a mission. What is our mission? To go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching them about our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you follow? But now we have, we actually have the corporation of the Santa Barbara Free Methodist Church. And we have, as we heard the testimony today, a finance board, we have boards, and those people have to take care of all the personnel and property and so on like that. And when they sit on a board, and this is what it's confusing to many people, if you haven't sat on a board, you, you haven't experienced this, but if you sit on a board, you feel responsible for the ministry as a whole more so than the people individually. Now this morning we heard that distinction as our chairperson said we didn't want to have to cut salaries and hours so the focus of our board was on people giving a living wage and all that kind of stuff. Do you follow? Mm -hmm. But if it's not on the people, if it's on getting more union reps and so on like that, more, uh, you know, uh, overhead, which is what we're hitting with our school systems right now, uh, they want to have more administrators and they don't want to abide by the law of California. For two years, they, they have not abided by it. And so they don't want to give the teachers what the state of California says you have to pay. They're, they're going to court to try to get out of it because Santa Barbara doesn't have enough money. I'm confused. Okay. I'm confused what happened to the guy that owned the grocery stores. Okay. The that owned the grocery stores. Now you've taken, they're there to make a profit, help the people that work there and make a living. Now somebody else is controlling their, their personal store. So what happened there? What do you mean? What happened to the person that owns the store that's not, he's the employer, I guess. I yeah, the employer is all of these these uh, grocery stores. They're all the employers. But now he becomes an employer right. looking out for his own profit, overhead, building, and so on. Just like these people didn't want to pay these people because they're looking out for their own profit. And that's why they had to unionize, get together, so that they could get a living wage for their employees. I mean, I get that part, but being a business owner, I keep, when I keep going back, like right now they're saying the grocery stores are ripping you off. Well, they're, everything that they have goes up, <clears throat> so everything you're going to get goes up. It's, it's a vicious cycle in some ways. It's a, it's a vicious, I, I'm not talking about uh, capitalism. This is the sociology of how okay. organizations function. Did they get so big at some point that they, did they 
end up focusing more on their overhead and management than on yeah. their initial reason for existing. Exactly. If, if your mission is, is subsumed now into the institutional needs, that's what, and that's what happens to churches. And I, I just put this, this is institutional bureaucracy at its best. If, if you die while waiting to see the doctor, please cancel your appointment. So no longer worried about, about people. Okay, let me, let me go back to, uh, and then the last one, on this, uh, oops. The last one: justice is learned through experience. You cannot uh, run a church in an unjust manner and and uh, expect that the children and everybody else un understands justice. Yeah, children learn what they see, not what they're taught, what they're told. Okay, so those are the four principles. Just keep that before you in that. Okay? Now, what's next you want to do? Sorry. What, any questions on what a just community looks like? So we're talking about honoring people, putting people first before profit, before institutional benefit. Okay? Amanda? Kind of coming off of the, um, what Doug Jones was talking about before being in service, how do we deal with the fact that both things are super important? Uh -huh. Like, we, we have to be responsible with the money that's coming in, and if there's not enough money coming in. Good point. You know. Glad you brought that side up. Yeah. Yeah, we have to be wise. We have to be uh, good stewards. We're told in the Bible to be good stewards of what's given to us and to be generous and not fall into greed yeah. as... Um, that's what Colin was talking about. But let's say that the church board decided that they needed to build a new sanctuary so we could get more people in at one time. Mm -hmm. Okay? But in order to do so, we're going to have to let everybody go but Colleen in order to make that mortgage. Okay, do you hear, the, hear what it is? If you, if you start saying, okay, the institutional needs, property, personnel, that kind of thing, all, all the institutional needs, overshadow the individuals and the mission that all these pastors are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I want to add something really interesting. So in my career as a chef, I've, I've had a couple of positions where one particular uh, place, it was just like, like the chef was very, very careful selecting the right people for the right positions. And it created a super team. And because the team was so strong, it just like it was an instant success. Right. And they just and then they just kind of like just being being so careful, like placing the right people with the right skills in the right positions. Uh, it, it was there's there's no room that there's no room that you couldn't fail. And yeah. so it just grew. Yeah. So that's what it's like. Yeah, that that's exactly right. But now, what happens to a restaurant that grows so much that it no longer cares about the customer? Or, or even better than that, the food, you know, collapses. Yeah. It lapses. <laughs> collapses. Collapses, yeah. It lapses. Nobody's going to come if they don't care about the people in the food. No. In that, in that situation. No. Same is true of the church. You're not going to keep coming or growing if that happens. Yeah, that's exactly. That's why the sociologists taught this at seminary, so that we could, we could understand that it's very important that a church be on mission 
And so you'll always hear us talking about mission, you know, your calling and everything. Okay? Okay, so we kind of talked about the meta, um, keeping it healthy, keeping the organization, the family, the workplace healthy. Now we're going to go back to the individuals, just between two people. And it's all based on having what we call active listening, direct communication. Remember that uh, very first picture of the groaning people with the two problems? They need to talk together. And it's going back to your question about knee-to-knee and face-to-face communication. Now we're going to um, read through this because it is basic to what we're going to be talking about. And Christina, um, can I pick on you again to start us <laughs> Okay, we're going to speak the truth in love, and we're going to start with three verses just to let you re- realize that God, has, God knows how humans work, and this is what works best for humans. So it starts off with those three verses at the top. First Corinthians 13, 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Ephesians 4, 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. James 1, 19. My dear brothers and sisters. And sisters, yes. (laughs) Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's and women's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Okay, so we can hear that word, listen to each other, and kind of think, okay, I do that. I mean, I keep my mouth shut while the other person's talking, and so I'm listening. But as we talked about last week, that's not really listening, especially if you're only uh, framing what your response is going to be, and <laughs> keeping your mouth shut while you get that in mind. And then you just give it back to each other. Then you just got two monologues that are like on parallel train tracks, never connecting. Mm-hmm. So with this, we're going to try to get down to how you keep it person to person. So um, Vincent, do you feel like reading uh, that first thing, listen? Sure. <clears throat> so listen with full attention. Listening is not, pass- it's not pass- passively quiet or formulating your answer but requires energy and focus. Being heard feels like being respected, cared for, understood. Okay, so this is one way you can offer love in a congregation, in a marriage, in a family, is by taking the time to listen. Remember last week, uh, they used the example of the, of the youngest in the pastor's family who was always being teased at the dinner table, so he never spoke. And they tried an experiment, stopped teasing him, started listening to him, and he started telling him about his day at school, and kind of opened up a whole new healthy place for him. Um, Jenny, you want to do number one there and then listen? Find a private, is that it? Find a private time and place for talking without distraction. Timing is important. Make an appointment for a better time if necessary. Don't bring up a complex topic as you're walking out the door or running out the door to get to your doctor appointment or to work or whatever. Make an appointment. And it isn't putting another person off to do that, especially if you can do that appointment within 24 hours. Okay? Greg, you want to do number two? Maintain eye contact while talking and listening as appropriate. Eye contact communicates paying attention. 
be aware of cultural exceptions. Okay, last week we talked, we're not going to have time in this class to talk about all the cross-cultural implications. Because sometimes, as we said, eye contact denotes a, a, a kind of an aggressive or even a sexual message. And that's not what we're talking about. In most of our particular culture, eye contact does indicate that, okay, I'm listening, and I'm not on my phone doing my text while you're talking about something important. Number three there, Kim? Give the speaker permission to say what is on his or her mind. Don't limit what is or is not okay to say if you want to encourage open discussion. Okay, if you want to have an intimate relationship based on communication, you can't follow that old rule of we're not going to talk religion, politics, or what was the third thing that was the kind of stamp money. We're not going to talk about hard things. Yeah, you can't have that kind of relationship and have it be intimate. Okay, Rosie, number four. Ask open-ended questions that encourage the other to express him or herself more fully not yes or no questions. Use what, how, not why, implying judgment. When we ask a question starting with why, it can put the other person on the defensive because it's questioning their motives or whatever. But if we think of ourselves as an investigative reporter, remember those classes back in high school, we ask what, how, where, those kinds of questions. Usually that will open up a little more information. Especially works if you're raising teenagers in your home or working with teenagers. Questions are really tricky. And so the more you can just listen, the more they are open to, to share themselves. Okay, uh, number five. Here. Allow positive and negative feelings, anger and tears to be expressed. Work on non-reactivity to others' emotions, especially anger. Develop a calm, non-anxious presence. Oh man, this is the key to <laughs> well, look at that. That's his major sign. This yeah, is non-anxious parent. Non-anxious in parenting, in being an employer, in the workplace. The more you can be calm and not react to whatever's being given to you, especially parents of teenagers. Again, you cannot get on the roller coaster with them. Their hormones and moods are gonna take them all over the map, and if we react and get on with them, it's not going to end well. So, not anxious only means I'm not going to get my anxiety up about this. I'm going to stay calm, but I'm going to stay present. I'm not going to bail. So even reason. if you feel like you're being attacked a bit? Yes, especially if you feel like you're being attacked. The more you can just be calm, listen, if it's an unsafe place for you, say, I'm going to have to excuse myself and get back to you on that. Um, I'm not saying put yourself in danger, but in these anxious, anger-filled, hard conversations that come with real communication, the more we can stay calm and not give it back to the person, the more we're going to have a positive outcome. Um, the interesting thing is, in my counseling, I saw that women seemed to be more uncomfortable when anger was being expressed, yeah. and men were just as uncomfortable when tears were being expressed. Don't cry. Yeah. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. Don't do that. Um, so, so practice getting more comfortable with the other person's way of, of being and communicating. Yes. Yeah. 
Any questions on that? That's such a big key. In fact, that's a golden ticket to being a parent, is learning how to be non-anxiously present. Okay, Amanda, you want to do number six there? Realize that anger covers up deeper feelings of hurt, rejection, sadness, grief, helplessness, betrayal. Get past the anger to help identify and talk about those deeper feelings. Okay, so this helps us, all of us who are uncomfortable with anger, realize that anger is like a scab. Okay, it's just the surface. It's not the real thing underneath. And to actually resolve whatever it is going on, got to get under that upper layer because it's just, uh, it's kind of like when people are asked to say their feelings and it's hard for them to identify their feelings. A lot of times they'll say, well, I'm frustrated. Well, we're all frustrated about a lot of stuff. It doesn't really tell you anything, okay? So getting down, and these are just examples. This is not an exhaustive exhaustive list, hurt, rejection, you know. These are some of the things that are fueling that angry reaction. So if we can get past that, not let that, let that put us off. Uh, is it Jonathan? It is, yeah. Okay, number seven. Put the other person's message in your own words. Then ask to be sure, they, sure that's what they meant. Don't try to read their mind. Don't assume you understand what they're saying and feeling. Check, check it out with, I hear you say, then let them correct you. Okay, this is another huge star um, concept because this, in effect, is the whole explanation of what active listening is. Active listening is being very focused, really listening, but then checking out that you actually got the right message and that you didn't get it lost in translation. Um, this is another good thing to do with teenagers. Uh, so I hear you saying the game is over at 8, and you're going out to snacks with your friends till 9, and you'll be home by 9.30. Is that, what, is that what I hear you saying? And if they say, and then asking them to, to give it back to you, and say, what do you hear me saying? I'll be home at 9.30. When they say that, you've got them. Because that means they actually heard you, and um, then there's some accountability. There used to be a comedian who said his wife would yell at him something downstairs in the basement, and he would just kind of pretend. And so if he's never feeding back, well, I hear you say supper's being served, then he's caught. But as long as he never says anything, who knows if he heard. Okay, let's do this next. We're going to go just a couple minutes over, because at hey, one point we're going to be in We're going to get in trouble. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm not, I'm not scared. Okay, next we're going to talk about respecting the other person. Susie, you want to do number one? No, I, I've had to do a lot oh. of listening because okay. I don't have a piece of it. Oh, we don't have a paper. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm so sorry. Okay, where are we? <laughs> we are right number one under respect. Okay. Treat them as a person of worth to be taken seriously. Not, not with sarcasm, rudeness, or disregard for their feelings. This is the basic of showing love to another person, right? Just some res a little respect, a little honor for their work. Number two, you guys do have uh, treat what they have to say as being important to you. Don't uh, ridicule their message or ignore their point of view. Okay. Again, same with respect. Number three, keep your 
conversation private and confidential between you. If they want their story told, let them tell it, don't gossip. Okay, this takes us back to that handy-dandy little sharing group rules thing that I handed out just one second ago. So in a small group, we're going to listen, support, and pray for each other. We're not going to fix each other's problems. We're not going to give advice. Uh, unsolicited advice usually is not well received. And if they do want help with problem solving, if they need a referral or something, after the meeting is the best time to do it. And you can see under these sharing group guidelines, Keep confidentiality is number one. It helps us trust each other. It helps protect our privacy. And so as members, we want to share only what's comfortable. Don't tell somebody else's story. Don't gossip. We don't have to give all the details. God knows those when we pray. And third, one speaker at a time, the mutual respect that we've been talking about for all the members, and praying for each one. Keep it simple. And uh, I've sat down with families, with teenagers, or sometimes older elementary kids can do this too, making some family rules, you know, and don't make a long list and nobody will remember them. Post them on the fridge so everybody can see them, get a reminder. But um, just some basic rules of how are we going to keep our family and home safe for everybody who's in it. Okay, confidentiality. Lisa, you want to do number four? <clears throat> Affirm them by using their name, encourage with nonverbal cues, nod, wink, word, etc., and give a hug or pat on the back if invited. Use touch carefully to keep those responses varied. Okay, we're a huggy church. <clears throat> this is actually scary to some people who visit. Okay, so when you are warmly greeting a visitor or a newcomer, you can ask, is it okay if I give you a hug? If that's, what, if that's your style. Not all of us are huggers. I, I kind of tend not to hug much, unless I know the person well. But um, realize different people have different comfort levels. And ask is always a good idea. And then the last one there, Richard, number five. Wait to share similar experiences until the other person is ready to hear them. Let them finish their story. Don't be too quick to redirect the conversation to yourself. Okay. Who in this room has had the experience that you might ask for prayer for surgery or something that you're going to go through, and the person that you're talking to or someone in your group says, well, that's nothing. I had two life replays, not just one. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't try to talk the other person. Let them express their concern and don't be quick to jump in and give your own story, unless it's helpful. And sometimes it's helpful for somebody to hear, well, you know what, I have that, and it's going to be okay. And yeah. So sometimes they want to hear that, but they don't want to be uh, one up to it. And then, yes, did I have anybody have a question? Okay. Uh, Carol, you want to do share yourself at the bottom. <clears throat> In your statement with I feel, not with, you always, or never, which makes a judgment on the other person. This is hard, but this is something that we can put a guard on our own mouth not to do. Because as soon as we say you always or you never, it's like the 
finger pointing as well. <laughs> Whether you're doing it or not, it feels like you're being called out. But I feel the word never is too extreme. It's all extreme. It doesn't help communication. Yes. But when you say I feel, the third word has to be a feeling. So I feel sad when you leave and don't tell me when you're going to come back. I feel excited about whatever. Not I feel that you should tell me when you're going to bat you or like no. It's I feel, and the third word is a feeling. Okay, yes, yes. Uh, I, I came across uh, some things I thought was kind of like really uh, interesting. And I don't know if you've heard this one before, but when you start pointing the finger at someone, there's always three pointing back at you. Ah, yes. Oh, that's good. That's good. Don't you want to do number two there? Ask for what you want or need directly. Be specific and clear. Don't expect the other person to read your mind. Or punish their inability to do so. Is this a timely one to read just before Valentine's Day? <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you how many couples, so, uh, and it was usually the wife who would say, well, "You should know me well enough by yeah. now to know what I really want, and not tell them what you really want." Um, so. We've been married 51 years. I told him, I want to see Stanley for Valentine's Day. That's a very clear community. He's not going to come home with. Dark talk at all. Not going to come home with diamonds, which is important. So, yeah, be clear. But here's the, here's the pushback I would get from these wives. They would say, uh, if I have to ask for it, it doesn't count. Now, does that put someone between a rock and a hard place or what? Yeah. You just ask. Nobody can read minds, and only if you live in a Disney fantasy fairy tale <laughs> does everything just happen magically without having to ask. There are people in our lives who occasionally will find just what we want without our needing it. But then, you like Barbara, but then we put so much, well, yeah. firstly, then I put so much weight into that, it's like, Oh, this should be a norm <laughs> for anybody who loves me. Yeah. 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 That's lightning strength. <laughs> okay, number three, Sarah. Uh, be sensitive to stop talking in order to listen to the other person's response. And for those of us who are talkers, that's a real discipline that we have to learn to do. And especially with Because if we're never quiet, we're never going to have so this is going to be the basis, the active listening that we talked about and the non-anxious to anger. Next week, we'll get more into uh, talking about anger and dealing with anger and how to resolve conflict and bring about resolution. So I hope you can all come back.